Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who the f*** are the Knutsons? He's a big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is a very special, rare episode of We Like TV. Although it's HBO, so it's not TV, right? Regardless of whether it's HBO or not, it's still kind of hard to think of Game of Thrones as it exists now as television in the traditional sense, right? Yeah, it's. I, I think it's, you know, a lot of people have made this point, but this might be the last show that's uh, appointment viewing. You know, it's so much appointment viewing that no one has any sort of qualms about uh, spoiling immediately hitting Twitter and Facebook and, uh, and, and the internet. So it's a big event and yeah, I think it exists outside what we consider TV nowadays for sure. We've entered into this period of sort of media androgyny I guess is, is kind of mm-hmm. a term I've been I've been working on of late. I've been <laughs> workshopping work up late. Between Avengers and Game of Thrones kind of happening simultaneously over the last couple of weeks, filmmaking has become so serialized and has sort of like adopted the television model, whereas mm-hmm. big shows like this have become cinematic. Maybe the relative critical failure of the last season of Game of Thrones can stem from the fact that it kind of became too much like cinema and maybe for, maybe sort of like lost sight of its television roots. And maybe we can get deeper into that. I mean, this was always a show that sort of lived and died by how it took its time and how it really, really like leaned into this long form type of storytelling. I was thinking a lot about Avenger, the MCU, and how the MCU represents 22 chapters in this Infinity Saga. Right, each each film in the MCU thus far was a chapter in this Infinity Saga story, and how many episodes are in your average season of? network television. Yeah, 22. Exactly. Like, I was just looking at, you know, the most recent season of Law & Order Special Victims Unit was 22 episodes, right? <laughs> and Game of Thrones has been getting, you know, I think their longest season, you know, they were, HBO is always around that 12, you know, they're usually 10 to 12, something like that, but they've been getting less and less, and now we only got six this season, and I think a lot of people would agree that, especially the people who are very angry this morning, <laughs> that mm-hmm. maybe that was a mistake to truncate things the way that they did. Yeah, and this is a complicated issue, I suppose we'll get right into In my opinion, any faults that HBO and D.B. Weiss and David Benioff have here is the decision to make this season only six episodes and not elongate this into two more seasons or one more long season or whatever. But from there, once the decision was made to make it six episodes, it's hard for me to find fault with any of the things that went on because it was was simply a, you only had so much time and space to to, to finish the story in, in any sort of satisfying manner. 
So I do wish, and I think they had the option to make this two more seasons, three more seasons. I think HBO would have said, make it as long as you fucking want, right? Like, we're on board. This is our big cash cow. And I don't know, do you know the backstory? Do you know, I don't, I actually am a little bit naive when it comes to the machinations behind closed doors of what was going on between HBO and Benioff and Weiss. Was it because they had to hurry up and get on to Star Wars? Or is it because the cast were pretty much all done and their contracts were up and everybody wanted to get on to other projects? I mean, why did they rush this thing out in this manner and truncate this season the way they did? Considering that it's been, what, almost two years since season seven? And even that was a short season. Yeah, I think just reading the tea leaves that they, I think they were kind of done with it, right? The show had gotten bigger and more more of a spectacle. And so it was just more and more difficult to film the show. And I think they're kind of burnt out. I mean, they've been doing this for a decade. You know, you're going between, what, four countries and, and some back lots. And, you know, if you're in charge of production and the screenwriting and, you know, just running a show, but it's this big international thing with this crazy sprawling cast of characters. Like, that's gotta, gotta get old, right? Especially when you're sort of, uh, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't critically like people are going to shit on you because you're past the books now i kind of understand why they wanted to get out because if you think about it like best case scenario two more years that's four more years of their careers pretty much full time and that's just a that's a whole hell of a lot to deal with and and, and I, I bet the cast was probably getting done with it too i get it and i you know i get the fatigue of it all i just i, I kind of feel like there's at least you know you add maybe four or five more episodes to this trajectory and you really you know you work towards actually completing things in a satisfying manner that is really going to be a love letter to the fans the way that I think fans felt that they deserve. And at the end of the day, these guys aren't beholden necessarily. I mean, one of my favorite yeah. quotes from one of my favorite professors of all time, the great Nick Fortunia, who taught an interactive narrative class at Columbia University, he said this thing that always resonated for me, which was fans don't know what they want, they just know what they like. Boy, the the ones who don't like what they saw over the last month are really, really vocal. Anger tends to get people more more vocal than elation. So I guess I I guess there may be like a silent majority out there of which I might even count myself who really kind of liked where this all went. But mm-hmm. at the moment it certainly seems like having, you know, giving themselves just a little more runway to land this thing, just a couple more episodes, even if they wanted to do that sort of bullshit tactic where you split it up and you're like, "Okay, mm-hmm. it's a 10 episode season, but we're going to take three, you know, we're going to take 6 months off between A part and B part of the last season." Even that would have been preferable, right? You know, I, I've had a number of long in-depth conversations with very angry Game of Thrones fans over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, my girlfriend included. Okay. You know, once you really drill down into sort of the decisions and then sort of the character issues that people have, you really get down to the place where it could have made sense if we had if we had taken more time to get this character to make this decision or that decision, right? It's a lot of armchair quarterback. Yeah, a lot of armchair quarterback. So I, I agree with that. But again, so we're left to fill in the blanks as an audience a little bit in terms of some of these, these, these character movements and... And, and machinations, as you said, I, I've had very little issue with it. I think what you said with uh, with your professor is absolutely right. All these people are, are coming up with these major criticisms, and yet they're offering no solutions. What, what I've taken issue with is, is people just being insanely vitriolic to Benioff and Weiss here, yeah. right? I, I, again, I know they're they're a couple of white guys, right? I know I know they maybe didn't give you exactly what you wanted. Let's let's tone down the fuck these guys sort of narrative. I mean, they've <laughs> they've shepherded the show. They had the source 
source material for three quarters of it, and then they don't have it for the last quarter of it, and then and they're they're forced to sort of try to make everyone happy and also be surprising, and also have a deal with this crazy multi-continent production. I don't envy them this task, and you know, given all that I just said, like of course it makes sense that they wanted to get out sooner rather than later, right? It's really funny that the show ended on May nineteenth, considering the film that we talked about last week. <laughs> You know, yeah. the the last episode of Game of Thrones, which will, I guess, widely be regarded until it eventually gets some sort of reevaluation years from now as a disappointment to the masses, came out on the same, on the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace, <laughs> which is obviously, you know, a culturally infamous disappointment. I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm really overwhelmed and impressed by what these guys have accomplished over the course of the last eight or nine years. I'll just come out and say it. I really, really like last night's episode I was really satisfied by it and maybe that speaks to my naivete to the series as a whole and the fact that I've always been just sort of more of a casual viewer not a super fan and I've never read any of the books or anything like that but I've become a bigger and bigger fan over the years and I was pretty pumped for this particular season and uniformly on Monday mornings I wake up feeling pretty good about what happened on Sunday night and then I go to the internet and realize I'm I'm in the minority or at least uh, the you know the vocal minority I mean I think this is an unprecedented storytelling accomplishment and the fact that Tyrion Lannister the sort of de facto lead of the show or at least the guy who's been the um, top build character for seven of the, of the eight seasons of the show basically just like comes right out and says it at one point during his final his big final speech this is about storytelling right this is a storytelling experiment this is about yeah. narrative of course it's a show about power and about politics and about loyalty and about family and love or whatever but more than anything this is a this is a meta examination of the mechanics of storytelling. And in that regard, I think it's an unprecedented experiment that's been just fascinating to watch and fascinating to watch people react so passionately. The crazy thing about this, and and, and people will balk at this because, you know, the super fans who read the books, but the storytelling that you're talking about has been all about sort of anti-fan service, right? Is to is to have the, the, the heroes not triumph in the end, right? And have the people who were built up, have these people who seemed fated to take the throne or whatever, not the anti-Joseph Campbell in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, the people who, who hated that uh, Danny massacred King's Landing would have hated the Red Wedding if the Red Wedding wasn't in the books or something, right? Interesting. I get people feeling betrayed, I suppose, by Daenerys' decision in the in, in the penultimate episode, but I feel like they'd been setting that up for eight seasons. <laughs> you know, like, th- that's how I felt. And I, I just don't understand what people expected to happen in these last two episodes. They expected expect there to be very little conflict and everyone to get like the most triumphant fan servicey ending to their characters ever like I, I, I listen to people complain about the way Cersei died like <laughs> Yes. What did you want? She does. She died a fucking anticlimactic death that she deserved, right? I was actually really uh, satisfied with that. I'm going to keep using that word because ultimately yeah. I feel very satisfied by how this all shook out. But I was really satisfied by that particular death. You know, she's a villainess and she deserved to die. But I found it very satisfying that she and Jamie died in each other's arms. And I thought there was a nice metaphor by the fact that they were literally crushed by King's Landing, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. that entire kingdom came crashing down on their heads. That's a pretty darn blunt but effective metaphor for this guy. Part of me is kind of disappointed 
to hear that we're both not disappointed. I was kind of hoping we'd get to spar about this a little bit more. Tell you what, let's set the table a little bit. I was I was getting really excited to jump right into it. I really don't know much about your history with the show or about your backstory, if you will, with this and, and where you started and how you felt about everything and whether you've been like into it from the beginning and you've always felt the same way about it or whether your passion has gone up and down over the seasons. How are you? Where were you with this show when season eight started? Way back, like four or five months before the show premiered, I believe, what was it, April 2011 or something like That's that? exactly right, yeah. January, February, somewhere around there, I had received a screener of the pilot from one of my friends who was still working at Buddy TV. Right. And before that, I had I know nothing of the book series or anything, and I watched the pilot, and I was absolutely fucking blown away. And this was the pilot that actually aired, not the infamous... Yeah, not the unaired, uh, the one they had to completely scrap. Right, which was directed by, what's his name, the Spotlight guy. Did you know that? Yeah, I just found that no. out the other day. It was, uh, oh, now I feel terrible. I'm forgetting his name. The guy who direct, directed Spotlight, who won an Oscar for Tom, Spotlight. Uh, Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy. Thank you. Yes. Very, very talented guy. Wonderfully talented Oscar winning writer-director. He actually directed the original unaired pilot that he spent like $10 million on. They mm-hmm. went back and they reshot the entire thing. Kudos to HBO for uh, for realizing that that, was, uh, that wasn't great and they, they just threw $10 million down the trash, but it all worked out in the end. And they recast a bunch of, they recast a bunch of the roles and they, yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think about that alternate universe version. But yes, I'm sorry, digression, continue. You watched the pilot and you're blown away by it. Blown away, I show, I, you know, I probably watched it four or five, six times because I kept showing it to people and, and getting it out there. I'm sure that was HBO's move too. It's just like start some buzz early. Watch that, loved the first season. I, I, I read the first two books between seasons one and two, I believe. And then I was just kind of a super fan from then on out. I mean, I, you know, it was appointment viewing for all eight seasons for me. And I agree with the backlash that once they got past the books that, you know, the story sort of sped up a bit and and the show changed from a lot of parlor talk, I suppose, to uh, more action. I was okay with that because I knew that they had to set the course for the end sooner rather than later because I I don't think they were interested in having a 15 season show while George R. R. Martin caught up to him. And if they kept the same pace that they had had for the first four or five seasons, they, they would never get to the end. I think people overlook that aspect of it quite a bit. While I do agree it got clunkier, I, I've still pretty much loved every season, even, even, the, even the last two. They passed the books in season five? Season I six? so. Okay. And there are, there are four books total? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's four books that took like five seasons to get through, I guess. Exactly. So were you on board from the beginning? I was not. I think I came in three seasons in, something like that. I was a little bit, for some reason, I have a very strange relationship with fantasy. I'm actually kind of fantasy averse much of the time. Mm-hmm. In the same way, I was sort of superhero adverse for, for a long time. It's not about being snooty or pretentious. It's just about um, having a lot of experience with IP that just sort of um, lands flat for me. Sure. So I want to read this uh, I want to read this quote that I found from Jeremy uh, Egner from the New York Times writing about last night's episode. Game of Thrones became a global phenomenon largely by upending expectations, and one way to achieve that was by using the calcified conventions of the fantasy genre against us. The noble patriarch defied by his morals, gone in the first season. Prince, his valiant son, who followed his heart, slaughtered along with his pregnant wife. This was a Shakespearean saga about power, blood, and loyalty we once told our skeptical fantasy-adverse friends. Not some show about dragons and wizards. And then, (laughs) in its final 
final episode, a dragon committed the story's most potent symbolic act and a wizard was put in charge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was not on board for the beginning. I saw it starting to become a phenomenon and starting to build steam. And yet uh, it just seemed like too much of a commitment to me. If I'm being perfectly honest, an ex-girlfriend kind of convinced me to watch it at one point. She sort of like gave me an ultimatum that I needed to like <laughs> sit down and catch up with the show so that we could watch it together. So I caught up and I binged the, the first two seasons very quickly over the course of like a month and got all caught up and got really into it. And I was never particularly academic about it. Like I certainly wasn't encyclopedic about the world, especially having not read the books. And I was watching the first two seasons pretty quickly and honestly pretty casually. But it kind of started working its way under my skin. You know, I just stayed with it and kept and stayed faithful to it. And by, yeah, by the fourth or fifth season, I was, it was appointment viewing for me for sure. I mean, it was, it was one of the main motivations for keeping up with my HBO Now subscription. I didn't know when the books ended and I personally didn't feel a drastic change in tone or a drastic change in quality the way that a lot of the experts did. I definitely felt the speed start to ramp up mm-hmm. around six. But to me, I, I really feel like maybe the greatest episode in the season of, in the history of the show was the Winds of Winter when Cersei blows up the Sept. Like to yeah, me, that kind absolutely. of, that sort of defines the show for me, which I think is the penultimate or the last episode of season six. So yeah. I, I think that might actually be the high point of the series for me, at least. And then, yes, season seven and season eight felt more like miniseries. They felt more like sped up miniseries than they did uh, seasons of television. So I get why people bristle a little bit at those, and I get why they feel a little bit betrayed by the kind of pivot in storytelling. But to me, I didn't feel like there was a drastic fall off in quality. I've been saying for the last couple of weeks that in a perfect world, there have been one, two more 10 episode seasons. This season would have been about the fight with the Night King and all the build up, and then, you know, maybe an episode or two afterwards for the aftermath. And then the final season would be the long march down to Winterfell, you know, the, the taking of the throne and, and all that. And I think there probably could have been 20 episodes, 16 episodes worth of material for that. However, I do think that people underestimate their own potential impatience with the ending of a story, especially if they can kind of see the writing on the wall. Once we got to the place uh, where, you know, where we were at the beginning of this season, you kind of knew what was going to happen. You kind of knew the beats, right? It was going to be Night King first, and then it was going to be King's Landing. And I'm not sure how else they could have even thought to do it, because, you know, what's going to happen? Night King's going to kill everyone we know, and then Night King's going to march down to King's Landing and kill everyone else? Like, that didn't seem to be where this was going to go. Which is why it's so baffling to me that, like, I've seen complaints about how uh, pointless the Night King was. It's like, what did you expect <laughs> from, from, from from this storyline? Did you expect, you know, the White Walkers to just win? What do you expect? Cersei to win? Like, I, I, I don't... <laughs> people's expectations were, like you said, they didn't know, they don't know what they want, they they know, I suppose, what the, they feel is is disappointment. Yeah, they definitely know what they don't like. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how bifurcated this last season was, and because everything really has been leading up to the whole White Walkers thing since the very beginning. I mean, isn't the first first scene of the first episode them going through the wall and getting a, getting attacked by the White Walkers? This is not a new concept. As a matter of fact, I was sort of thinking that that was ultimately going to be that that was going to be the thing I thought we were leading up to the fact that everyone that the you know that the living are going to all have to put their differences aside 
side to fight a bigger evil than each other. Well, I mean, that was the idea. Cersei even said she was going to help, but ended up not, right? You know, I guess I sympathize with people who think that they just sort of tied up the whole uh, Army of the Dead thing too quickly and too easily. But I just think it's kind of indicative of how much business we had to get through here in such a short amount of time. And I thought the last night was fine. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was technically very impressive. I, I wouldn't put it top three battle episodes of the series necessarily. No. But I wasn't one of those people who was um, hemming and hawing and pulling my hair out about the darkness of it all, the photographic darkness of it all. I guess they they uh, tidied it up pretty quickly, but for fuck's sake, it was one, it was a movie length episode. Yeah. So basically you got a movie that was an entire battle, right? I mean, most of the episodes this season were, were movie length. I think yes. the, maybe the first episode and the third or fourth episodes were a little over an hour, but most of them are hour 20 to hour 30. You know, it's it's impressive in its own right that they made six little movies yeah. for this. And, and I had always thrown out the idea that they should make the finale like a literal in the theater movie. Why would they not do that? I mean, HBO is not Netflix. HBO is not as dogmatic as Netflix is about this kind of stuff. At the risk of being totally capitalist about all this, I feel like you're leaving a lot of money on the table as HBO, right? I mean, why would you not just release the final episode, the the two-hour finale of the show in theaters, and that way people can go and see it on Friday night who just can't wait until Sunday night? And if you'd rather sit and watch it at home, you can watch it on HBO just like you normally do on Sunday night. But if you're just chomping at the bit to see how this thing ends, you know, why not just do it in the movie theater? I, I... I like that plan. That was never discussed. They've done it before. They've released other big... I think The Watchers on the Wall was released in theaters. Hard Home might have been in theaters. Really? They've done, they've done it a couple times. They've done like special limited like IMAX engagements of yeah. individual like big battle episodes. So like why not do The Last Night and then Bells in, in movie theaters? I don't know. May, may have... May feel like there'd be a backlash against subscribers. People who are like, I already pay my 10, 15 bucks a month for HBO and I don't want to pay more for it but well then uh, do then do this then if you can prove if you have credentials if you go to the movie theater and can prove that you have an hbo account then you get a discount or you get a free ticket or you get a discount on your popcorn i mean there's got to be some sort of incentivizing for this right if they had announced a year beforehand that the finale is going to be exclusively in theaters for two weeks yeah i mean you're gonna make a hundred million dollars on that thing right i like this idea a lot but then again i'm also sort of old-fashioned and really wanting people to make the pilgrimage so uh, but I've, i've always been supportive of this idea this might be the last opportunity for something like this right i mean we're now that we're going to schism and we're going to get all these streaming platforms and stuff i mean this this really feels like the last television hurrah of of something of this size right i have been thinking about that and that's potentially the case it's hard to imagine something being bigger than game of thrones and part of that is because just how ambitious an undertaking it was, right? Like the the world building, the dozens upon dozens of, of characters. But HBO is sort of the last bastion of, of event television that's released on a single night, right? They don't plop their entire series down uh, seasons at a time, you know, like, like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. I did hear, for what it's worth, though, I, I've heard rumblings from Favreau that the Mandalorian is planning on doing that mod- that release model that the Mandalorian will not be doing a binge model in November. Good. Now they could they they've certainly could change that, they could renege on that, but at the moment apparently they're planning on doing one episode per week for I presume I su- 10 I weeks. I support that. And you know, I I don't want to devolve into a Netflix discussion because we've <laughs> Lord knows that horse, yeah. <laughs> but I am utterly baffled that Netflix has never even attempted that, experimented with that for any of their shows. Isn't that weird what maybe try uh, 
a season of Stranger Things and, and release an episode once a week because I think you lose the sort of cultural cachet of it when when everyone's sort of on different viewing timelines, right? Maybe part of it's they don't want to release their numbers for anything or whatever. I'm sure there's some sort of algorithmic justification for the way that they do it. Or it could just also be, it could be the classic uh, Netflix rabble-rousing too, right? Yeah. Like, chaos reigns, fuck the world, we do, we do what we want, we're Netflix, we release yeah. it all, fuck spoilers, get you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's probably it. <laughs> fuck spoilers. But going back, like, all it would take is for one of, in any of the new HBO shows to sort of uh, have a similar popularity. And I mean, they're going to keep trying with, it's probably, I, I doubt the Watchmen show will be that big. I mean, Westworld season one kind of had it too. I, I kind of gave up on Westworld after, after the first two episodes of season two. Uh-huh. But maybe it's His Dark Materials, which I think is could be absolutely spectacular. I've Those are some of my favorite books. I read them last year. So that has potential. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to imagine a phenomenon like this happening again soon, or at least happening to this degree. Well, it's funny that you mentioned His Dark Materials and Watchmen and Westworld, all of which existed in different formats before this and I don't I don't yeah. mean the, I don't mean their original format I mean they've all been adapted you know yeah. Westworld was originally a movie Watchmen already had a movie a very controversial film His Dark Materials had a film so like these are all things that have been through different versions over the years and have all sort of attempted something elsewhere what makes mm-hmm. Game of Thrones so interesting and so admirable and so kind of peerless is that it was a perfect adaptation from the page to the screen Mark Martin even had offers, apparently, from people wanting to make this into a movie or a trilogy or whatever. And he was like, no, it's got to be it's got to be a show. Or even if he didn't think that, he knew that it couldn't just be a movie. And Benioff and Weiss convinced him that it needed to be a show. Not exactly sure how that how the deal got made. But I know that he <laughs> I know that he I know that he turned down the opportunity to make this into a movie or movies multiple times. It just seems like it was such a perfect transition from the page to this serialized format on HBO. Whereas when it comes to His Dark Materials and Watchmen, it feels like we're trying to force something that has been tried before and according to a lot of people failed right like we're both watchmen apologists the very first podcast we ever recorded <laughs> was was a watchman apology session because we both yeah. kind of like that movie and think it's think it's an interesting experiment to the general public that is a that is an artistic failure and yeah. so now we're going to try it again and I, i've been thinking so much about all these people who are signing this petition this week saying fuck game of thrones fuck benioff and weiss fuck hbo unsubscribe what are they doing they've ruined my life you know i've <laughs> Good I've dedicated, Lord. you know, eight seasons and almost a decade of my life. I wouldn't be surprised at some at some point if they tried to reboot this or, or do it in a different fashion. Or I mean, I don't think they're going to go back and remake this last season the way that a lot of people wish that they would. Not just a spinoff, because we are we obviously already know that that's going to happen, but some sort of reinterpretation at some point, right? Well, I mean, a lot of people think that uh, that line from Tyrion last night, um, "Ask me in ten years." Yeah, interesting. Yeah, is a subtle hint that we might just pick this story back up at some point. So. It's certainly have laid the track for it there's there's a lot of fascinating open ends at the end of this episode there's a whole whole world to explore and you know all of our characters are off doing different things so all the characters that remain living are off doing different things so i mean there's something to be done there but game of thrones shit is is so unique because not only was it a adaptation that hbo signed off on uh you know the the showrunners taking as much time as they wanted or needed with the story you know like you said that wouldn't have happened in a movie but also it was a story that was unfinished is a weird benefit 
to the audience, to the super fans, because there is still an element of, of surprise with the storytelling and, and how they go about doling out the narrative. You know, it's a story that even George R. R. Martin has admitted to. He didn't know where it was gonna where it was gonna go, right? It felt so big and sprawling in a way that something even like Lord of the Rings can't be in. Like I think you're right, like his dark materials can't be because you you can't foresee exactly how it's gonna end from the very beginning, which I think part of why Game of Thrones was so successful and such a phenomenon. You mentioned Lord of the Rings and we definitely need to circle back to that because I think there's a lot of similarities between the way this ends and the way that uh, Return of the King sure. ended. Um, but before I forget, I, I just want to briefly touch on the idea of a show a show where the creators don't know where it's going to end having to find an mm-hmm. ending. Apparently, Vince Gilligan always knew exactly where Breaking Bad was going to yeah. end. David Simon and, and the guys from The Wire, they always knew where that was going to end. They always knew it was going to be exactly five seasons. You've read all the books. Sounds like you're actually satisfied by the way that Benioff and Weiss ended mm-hmm. this. And you're also a lost guy. Infamously a show that didn't know how to land, yeah. right? That like started with a great premise, but nobody, Lindelof and J.J. Abrams, whoever else, that didn't know how to end yeah. it. Didn't know where it was going to go. And ultimately, it sounds like that is probably the closest comparison to this in terms of an enormous fan base being disappointed by the ending. I'm very intrigued by the fact that you actually like where this ended and you're satisfied by this final episode because it seems like most of the vitriol and most of the disappointment comes from the George R. R. Martin faithful, right? The people who feel that this is a betrayal. I, I guess. I mean, I so t- to be to be honest, I I didn't read the last uh, book. Um, I just felt like I you know I I was getting the story elsewhere, right? You know, Lost is his own interesting thing because uh, I don't think they expected it to be the the hit that it was, and then they didn't know when it was going to end, and so that they I think they they started something that just wasn't going to have a satisfying ending. Like they they kept <laughs> tunneling themselves into real deep. <laughs> Writing themselves, yeah, in writing themselves in the corner. But for me, the ending of Game of Thrones is just—I'm so impressed by how they were able to wrangle this story. Talk about beating a dead horse, but the degree of difficulty here, Matt, mm-hmm. was obscenely high. True, and people have talked about oh there are other big shows that had great endings almost to a t those shows had lower stakes or were dealing with way fewer characters i mean breaking bad was the story of one guy and it had a pretty natural arc parks and recreation had a real low stakes ending ending this show on anything but a slight disappointment to fans was is going to be impossible right the fact that this final episode and and i was more worried about this episode than i was the, the episode before because i didn't have a problem with with Danny's big decision, right? I thought the finale was extremely well done, well produced, fairly poetic, and quite lovely, and put a put a bow tie on so many of our characters in a way that I didn't think was was going to be possible. That's why I am extremely impressed and satisfied. Like I, I get that it by nature it's going to be a little clunky sometimes because you're trying to wrap things up in a in, in a finite amount of runtime. But I, I don't think there was going to be a way to make it all that much better than it ended up being. It ends so much more hopefully than I expected it to. I mean, yeah. this is real. This is a series that has been built upon subversion of expectation, but also, you know, a certain amount of nihilism in terms of how it chooses to punish some of its characters indiscriminately, mm-hmm. arbitrarily sometimes. I mean, you know, we were talking about maybe turning your back on the whole Joseph Campbell model, going into this thing with a little more of a scorched earth mentality, which I think is part of the reason that it became such a phenomenon was people are just like, uh, we don't know what to expect. Any given, any given week, yeah. your favorite character could just, you know, lose their head. Mm-hmm. And it 
really surprised me how they ended this on a very sort of hopeful, optimistic note that felt kind of sweet and, and surprisingly funny and touching. I don't know, again, I mean, maybe I'm just sort of like betraying my naivete or my casual relationship to the series, but I personally was really, really happy with the way that they ended things. Danny had to go because she allowed herself to get to, to like lean into her worst impulses and the, the absolute power corrupting absolutely of it all. I think that's the only way we could go with her after last week's episode. John goes right back to where he started, which I think is a really elegant piece of, of book ending. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of lands right where they should and the show makes some really interesting observations about politics and about gender, you know, ultimately we don't put a woman in power the way that I think a lot of people had hoped we would. But at the end of the day, this is still a show that has struggled with gender politics and the way that gender politics, I understand that this is a fantasy world. This is not a historical document. Mm-hmm. And the logic of the fantasy world that they've constructed, the gender politics are such that there still is an enormous amount of sexism in this world, yeah. right? So the fact that Sansa gets crowned and that Bran can be the head of the Knights Kingsguard or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like there are some baby steps here, right? Okay, so Cersei, who was a bad person and didn't deserve to rule, and Daenerys, who allowed herself to fall into madness, ends up not ruling. I mean, I understand the disappointment of not ending with a a woman on the throne Mm -hmm. can be disappointing to a lot of people, and and I sympathize and I understand why the idea of the two biggest female heads of power in the show basically both becoming horrible people that can't be voted for or valued for right yeah. like I, I get that there is there's something there and that is a problem and I un- I understand why from a feminist standpoint a, a sticking point that is worth dissecting and worth hand-wringing over I, I, I get it and I agree and I understand and the construct of this the idea of putting a lesser contender you know like somebody who doesn't want it mm-hmm. and somebody who nobody expected to me felt perfect it's a subversion of expectation and it's also an undermining of the idea of the throne right yeah. Between fucking torching the throne, which was just one of the greatest moments in television <laughs> history, and something I've been predicting for weeks, but not in that manner. I don't know why it was so stupid. I, I never saw that coming. For some reason, I saw Jon Snow running up with a with a sledgehammer or something <laughs> and just bashing this the throne into oblivion. It never occurred to me that, yes, of course, why not just fucking have the dragon torch yeah, it? Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing, <laughs> an amazing moment. And basically really sums up everything I think about politics. Yeah, sure. So by torching the throne and then putting Bran on it uh, subsequently as somebody that nobody expected, somebody who doesn't want it, somebody who can't sire children, somebody who's not even really a person by this point. <laughs> to me, it just felt perfect. I mean, I get why it pisses a lot of people off, but I'm just like, oh man, it didn't feel like a fuck you to the audience from Benioff at Weiss. It felt like a statement about like, look, we need to undermine this thing a little bit, yeah. right? And it's going to be about the guys behind the guy. It's not going to be about the guy who sits on the throne. It's going to be about we're working, baby stepping towards some kind of democracy or, or whatever, right? To not take anything away from brand's power or his intelligence necessarily but the idea that he's he's somebody nobody expected is a significant statement interestingly the vegas odds on him were actually pretty even by last night i think i think there might have been some leaks but uh yeah i'm not sure it's pretty crazy a lot of people a lot of people are very paranoid about why vegas seemed to have gotten it before and be considering that nobody else was predicting this really i think it makes total sense because like as you mentioned one of the great themes of the show has been absolute power corrupts absolutely it wouldn't have made sense for them to have someone 
someone who was ambitious towards power to end up on the throne, right? You know, they could have had a cynical sort of nihilistic ending where everything goes back to the way it was and history is going to repeat itself. But if you were going to go the more optimistic route, which they did and which I enjoyed, I think Bran seems perfect. And I, it's not something I was expecting going into the episode, which like a series finale that surprises you and makes sense. It doesn't feel sort of arbitrary. I, I think that's pretty darn cool. And makes a statement that speaks to the now, yeah. right? I mean, again, it's a fantasy. I get it. It's not historical. It's still a period piece. And so you're making a statement in your period piece that speaks to the political climate we live in now, which I like because it's not preachy, but it still takes a stand, Yeah, right? And I'm a, I've always been a Davos, Tyrion rhetoric, you know, like I'm way more into those guys hand-wringing and, you know, breaking things down. Like I'm way more into that than I am into dragons and explosions and, and battle sequences. So the fact that those two guys, two of my favorite guys, two guys for whom I hang on their every word, still get to pull strings and get to be involved and will make some smart decisions here on out, even if they are, you know, making it in service of this kid in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, I like that. And, you know, maybe my favorite character in the entire show, Braun, <laughs> you know, he's he's really going to bang the drum for uh, for rebuilding those brothels because it's important. To him, it's important. Right? Yeah, it's important for the, the well-being of the citizens of King Landing. You know, they, they need it. The fact that he not only gets to come back, but also gets to be involved in that crazy motley crew of characters around that table at the end. Mm -hmm. Like, I want the Veep-style political farce (laughs) about that small council, right? I want that. That's a spinoff I want. I, w- I want that round take. I want that political comedy with <laughs> Bronn and Sir Davos and Tyrion and Bran of Tarth and Podrick yeah. and uh, Samuel Tarly. I want that show. I would watch the Arya, Arya the Explorer show for sure. I- I'm <laughs> I'm totally with you. I think Davos has been my favorite character for the last however many seasons, and I think that guy's the, maybe the best actor on the show. Liam Cunningham is wonderful, yeah. and I-, I just liked the way that the episode that the series ended with so much of the decency kind of coming to the surface. Yeah. Right? I mean. Call me old-fashioned, call me a softie, but I, I like that so many of the decent characters not only survived, but were put in positions where they actually could make a difference. Yeah. So let's go through some of the biggest issues people have had with this season. I want to, I you know, just sort of take your temperature on them. Please. Brienne and... Jamie Lannister bone, um, and then Brienne cries when she, when he leaves. Yeah, yeah. Of all the character stuff that people, you know, character assassination, that sort of thing, that one did sort of bother me a little bit, but I want to know your take. Yeah, I mean, she's always felt like such an asexual character to me throughout the entire series, despite the fact that she and Jamie had a very sexy conversation in a uh, jacuzzi yeah. many, many years mm-hmm. ago. And I've always been fascinated by that relationship. You know, I never sexualized and shipped it the way a lot of people Mm -hmm. have. And so I was really, really moved by the episode, which I think is my favorite episode this season, one of my favorite episodes of all time, where he finally knights her, Mm -hmm. really like a a high point, a dramatic high point for the show. I was not expecting them to go further than that. I was not expecting them. I thought that was the logical conclusion of that relationship. I did not expect them to take it in a sexual realm and then for them to be basically considering becoming a couple. Yeah. (laughs) And then him to break her heart in that manner. I I did not see that coming. And in that regard, I'm impressed with the show for subverting my expectations like that. I understand why it's a little tough to see this incredibly independent character basically beg a man not to leave. The optics of that, I understand, are are a little tough. I mean, this is also somebody who has has no experience with intimacy, right? And has, has no experience with romance and has no experience with sexuality. And she's feeling a lot of 
things she's never felt before, and that's it rang true to me in that moment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's 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 more optics than the sort of reality of the characters at the time. I think they probably felt that they just needed to give Brienne something to to work with this season, and it was it was it was a good sort of way to show where Jamie's heart really was. Well, that's the thing is at the risk of sort of supporting a bridging kind of situation, you know, like a, a situation where a female character is used to reinforce the internal conflict of a male character. Yeah. The way that they play that out in terms of how Jamie goes back to King's Landing to be with Cersei, I mean, that's a really important character moment for Jamie. Yeah. Like, that tells you everything you need to know about him, right? Like, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, this is who he's going to be. Like, he has come to terms with who he is and what he wants. And, you know, you feel terrible for Brienne in that moment, and it is heartbreaking to see her react like that. And the optics of it are complicated, but it still is really important to to reinforce like how how lost this guy is right yeah like he's he's lost like his his heart's always going to be with this with this one person and he's he will follow her to his death because mm-hmm. that's who he is and that's who he's always been let's talk briefly about Euron Greyjoy and the <laughs> fact that he could nail the dragon from however many yards away I, I think that character got kind of a short shrift and I didn't really get it I know he's a little he gets a little more play in the books supposedly I don't know I, I think he was he was more of a plot device than than anything I like him. I'm a, I'm a Euron Greyjoy <laughs> apologist. You're a Euron guy. I'm a Euron guy. I think he was. I think he was a late round pickup. Mm-hmm. Came in late in the game and really put up some points. Mm-hmm. I I love the way he talked his way into Cersei's bed. Like I I loved his in- incorrigibility and I loved his kind of devil may care attitude. The fact that he's kind of a he's a bit of a pirate, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's got those leather chaps and he's got all of his boats and he's got his crazy scorpion crossbows. I like his mutton chops. I'm just I'm I'm, I'm all in on that. Did you have an issue with the ease in which he dispatched of the the second dragon? Yeah, I wasn't crazy about that. That was indicative of just the race to the finish line, the speed of it all. I wasn't. Yeah. I, I, I was okay with the fact that he sort of perfected this, that he'd engineered this technology to be able to achieve that. I just needed a little more. I needed a little more table setting for that. I, I totally empathize with people who took issue with with how that all went down, how that dragon went down. You know, they really took the dragons off that board. Very drastically. I agree with that. Okay. Now the big one. I think we're probably in agreement on this, but Danny's decision to to massacre the people of King's Landing. Yeah, I, I buy it. I get it. I think it's I think it's justified. I think it's earned. I mean, I think she's just been the table has been laid for this for a long time. Yeah. And she is the she is the daughter of the Mad King and all this other stuff. And again, somebody who doesn't know much about the about the history and honestly for at least three or four seasons there, I didn't even know who they were talking about when they referenced the Mad King. That's how, that's how naive I was. <laughs> Until I did a little bit of research. Yeah, I buy it. I get it. I mean, she's lost, basically lost everything, right? She's lost She's lost her best advisor slash, you know, maybe the love of her life who she kept in the friend zone for a long time, but still obviously loved in her own way. Mm-hmm. You know, she lost her best friend. She's lost a lot of the Dothraki. She lost her first husband. And now her boyfriend who's supposed to be her ally is not only disagreeing with her decisions, but he might potentially be a threat. Plus, he doesn't want to be intimate with her anymore. Yeah. But again, we're getting into this optics situation, right? Like a lot of people take issue with the fact that it's like oh she's a woman and she's she just goes crazy because her boyfriend won't sleep <laughs> you know like yeah. these are these are touchy these are touchy issues and, and and I get it but to say that it's not justified or to say that it's not an interesting arc for the character from a narrative standpoint it really 
took us in a, in a fascinating direction that I didn't see coming at all. I do think they've been hinting at this. I mean, the building up to this point for eight seasons, she's had no issue torching people. And yes, she's listened to her advisors in the past, but they've sort of talked her off the ledge a number of times in terms of murdering more people, in terms of her wanting to murder more people. So I get it. Yeah. And I understand the sort of balking at how emotions took over for this person and that a woman has to is going to react emotionally as opposed to rationally. But for however many seasons, we had Cersei on the Iron Throne, basically. Um, and she's as ice cold and strategic as, as, as anyone that we've seen on the show. So I'm not sure that that's uh, something that the creators, that D.B. Weiss and Benioff are, are trying to say about decision-making of women or anything. But Cersei's the Ice Queen yeah. and uh, Daenerys is the Fire Queen. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Ice and, a Song of Ice and Fire. I do think part of it is the fact that people had built up the Danny character as something that she wasn't, you know, for seasons, as this heroic person. People who had been rooting for her had been uh, have a little egg on their face, you know? Many of her followers had probably built her up to be something that she wasn't, right? Exactly. There were seasons in there where I was like, uh, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll follow her to the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess she's I guess she's the hero of this. The conscious choice to not show her on the dragon uh, after she started going crazy on the uh, on King's Landing and just showing, you know, the massacre from the, from the street level, that really rubbed people the wrong way. But I think that was the point. And I think that if we had just seen it from above, I think if we had just seen the destruction from above, people wouldn't have had this reaction because they weren't they weren't seeing the uh, people burning to death in the streets. That's a long way of saying I totally get it. I totally agree with it. And I was pretty confused and baffled by uh, the vitriolic reaction from from the masses. It's a necessary device to just hammer home the idea that she has just lost herself in this pursuit of power. Yeah, absolutely. You need to reinforce the fact that anybody who wants this so badly and is consumed by the desire for this is not the kind of person you want with their finger on the button, right? Exactly. Like she's she's the one, she's the only one who's ever had the nuclear option. She's had three nuclear options at her disposal. This has nothing to do with her gender, but you don't necessarily want somebody who is so hateful and yeah. and has and has lost so much and so willing to just burn it to the ground. The fact that they end up installing Bran kind of speaks to the idea of a boring leader who is kind of an example of compromise, right? Sure. Lawyers always talk about the fact that when it comes to divorce proceedings, your goal is that both of the people who are getting divorced will ultimately be kind of disappointed by the outcome. Yes. <laughs> sure. A successful divorce is one in which both sides are just a little bit disappointed, right? Yeah. That makes you don't want one person to like win big over the other person to like have this enormous financial windfall. You want them both to get not quite as much as they were hoping for and to have lost a little more than they had hoped for. Exactly. And I feel like that's kind of where we come down in terms of the compromise of, of putting somebody like Bran on the throne. Like nobody's super excited about it. It's, it's kind of just a compromise, but that's sort of what politics ultimately should kind of be about. You don't want hot or cold in a position of power you kind of want somebody who's a little bit milk toasty I feel and then you want to surround them with people who can uh, have some good ideas all right Matt we've been going for almost an hour any final thoughts here at this point Benioff and Weiss move on to Star Wars you know we, we talked a little bit about how this episode comes out on the anniversary of Phantom Menace mm-hmm. how, how do you feel as somebody who likes the direction that they took this in and who's obviously a fan of theirs and a defender of theirs are you optimistic about their Star Wars films? Are you interested in seeing them graft this kind of sensibility into a new Star Wars myth, a new Star Wars saga that will probably not involve the Skywalkers? I am interested. I'm not 100% confident that they're going to nail it. 
you know, I'm not. I don't. I don't think it's a done deal that they're going to knock it out of the park. I am interested in this sort of sensibility and bringing maybe a little more believable political intrigue and a little more sort of uh, some more nebulous three dimensional characters to the Star Wars saga. I think that could be interesting. And, and what I'm actually really encouraged about was the fact that they directed last night's episode, which I thought was pretty fucking well done and had a lot of incredible shots showing the uh, the start kids going off in their separate ways and sort of having some visual connective tissue there. I'm, I'm encouraged about their ability to direct these movies. I don't know if they're going to direct just the first one or all three. I'm intrigued by what they'll come up with being able to start from scratch because that's not obviously what they were doing uh, with Game of Thrones. This was the first episode they've ever directed, right? Have, didn't they wait 73 episodes to finally direct? I mean, who knows how much influence they had on the other 72 episodes, but isn't this the first one they've ever actually gotten director credit on? I feel like they may have directed one episode in the last each of the last two seasons, but I'm not I'm not positive about that. I'm not, yeah, how, how do you feel? I, I mean, again, I feel like I'm kind of in the minority of being like, I, I like where they took us, and I'm I'm in. Like, I, I feel like I, I'm now here at the end of things, not unlike my relationship with the MCU series. I've kind of developed into a super fan right as things have come to their end. I really have liked where they've landed, and I think they're both incredibly accomplished storytellers. You know, Benioff is a very successful novelist. It was yeah. before he even got into any screenwriting or anything. So I'm very intrigued by where they take this. I just think it's so interesting that now we're at a place where these two guys who are responsible for this very, very divisive show are going to move on to create a new trilogy in the Star Wars universe. And the other guy who's, who's been tasked with creating his own spinoff trilogy is the guy who made probably the most divisive Star Wars movie thus far, right? In Ryan Johnson. So we got these three, we got these three white guys who are not necessarily everybody's favorite three white guys who are now going to be in charge of, of making these films in one of the, you know, like at this point, I feel like it goes MCU, Game of Thrones, Star Wars in order of cultural importance. And you get where Kathleen Kennedy's coming from, especially after the Colin Trevorrow, you know, solo debacles. There's only so many people who you know can handle this sort of production. I bet they are so stoked to be able to start and end and plot out a story from front to back, you know, with no sort of questions about where it's supposed to go, right? I'm excited for them. I I, I do think they're going to start in a bit of a fan fan love deficit, <laughs> but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, maybe it just means that uh, expectations will be somewhat tempered, which is probably pretty much where you want to be starting anyway right it'll be interesting to see them move you know make the lateral move from fantasy into straight up science fiction although that being said you know star wars has always had aspects of of fantasy and magic and stuff as well so it's not that much of a departure and and yeah the last the epilogue of this last episode really does really does mirror the end of the lord of the rings franchise in a lot of ways doesn't it i mean you basically just have a recreation of the of the scene at the end of Return of the King where Frodo says goodbye to everybody and gets on the boat. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what Jon Snow does, who's kind of the ser- this series Frodo, right? Yeah, exactly. A- as many uh, fade to blacks as there were in this last episode, <laughs> it's still, they still do it pretty tidily. It doesn't feel too elongated, given the fact uh, that we had so many characters and we had to figure out where everyone was. I mean, you, you feel like you kind of know where everyone's going and where everyone, what everyone's up to by the end of it, which is impressive in its own right. I just want to end with a quote from uh, Victor Luckerson, who was writing for The Ringer, talking about Drogon the dragon. Devastated by the death of his mother after her tragic quest for power, Drogon will fly off to another realm, determined to help humans abstain from their worst impulses. Realizing that money is the manifestation of avarice that corrupts most souls, <laughs> 
he will launch a noble quest to gather all the gold in his new land so that humans might be compelled <laughs> to organize a communist agrarian society in which resources are shared equally. Unfortunately, a hobbit and a phalanx of dwarves, much more battle-ready than Tyrion, will undermine his plan, killing him in his dream of war- <laughs> of a world where people don't obsess over iron thrones and golden rings. I like that fan fiction. That's good stuff. <laughs> I believe it. I feel like that's a good place as any to end. All right. Well, everyone, this has been We Like TV Game of Thrones Edition. Till next time. See you later, Matt. Bye. Bye.